Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship this morning, would you take your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, specifically this morning, we'll focus our attention on the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1 as we start a new summer series through this New Testament book. If you're new to 1 John, you're going to find it toward the end of the New Testament. If you have your pew Bible or our pew Bibles, the church's pew Bibles there in front of you, it's going to be on page 1021, so that might could help you get to 1 John this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm asking you a question this morning. How can you find joy in life? Where is going to be the source of true joy? How can you walk in joy in your life? This week I did a little bit of research trying to find an answer to that question. I asked my research assistant, her name is Siri, you might know. Siri sent me to a website entitled success.com. Now, that, that's a pretty astute website name right there. If you want to find out where joy is actually found in life, go to success.com. 11, 11 principles that if you follow these principles, you will invariably find joy in your life. Let me give you these principles without uh, sort of the accompaniment to them, but just one by one. Stop waiting to be happy if you want to find joy in life. Add happiness to your life right now if you want to find joy. Make self-care part of your routine. Get in a joyful state of mind. That's number four. Stop worrying. You want to find joy? Just quit. Quit all the worrying. Appreciate the small things in life. You want to do that if you want to find joy. You want to surround yourself with positive people if you want to find joy. Laugh more. Love more. Find bliss in your bucket list. You want to find joy in your life? Get a bucket list and start you know, checking those things off. And then plan your happiness. That will give you joy. So if you follow those 11 things according to success.com, you will experience joy. Now, here's the thing, and I want to be tried about this here, because there's much on this list that we would say it can be helpful to all of us in this room. But I would also say that these kinds of lists, and, and this could be true for any question that we would ask to the internet, any question that we'd ask to the world, is how do we discover something like joy, a biblical concept? Uh, what, what the world will give us is 11 steps that are absolutely impossible to fulfill. I mean, absolutely exhausting to be able to really live up to all of these principles right here. Uh, and, and frankly, it's, it's really unrealistic. Uh, just, just quit worrying. Just stop it. Quit worrying. Surround yourself with positive people. You, you know, and what, what, if you're, what if you're not surrounded with positive people? Do you mean do you quit your job? Do you leave your family? Do you, do you I mean, what, what do we do when our circumstances around us dictate to us that these are principles that we can't really live out in our lives? Is there another source of joy other than you fulfilling sort of this endless and unrealistic goal of, of joy being in all in your pursuit and all in your hands? And the answer to that is yes. 
And John wants us to hear that answer at the outset of his letter. Actually, he doesn't even get four verses into 1 John chapter 1 before he tells us that he is writing all of these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, he's writing to his original audience, most likely at a church in Ephesus here. But as we, through the Holy Spirit, overhear this letter, we discover that, that we can find joy not in uh, endless pursuit of what we do, not in an endless utilization of others, but we can find joy in who we know, who we bask in, who we delight in. That Jesus could be the center of your life and the center of joy for you. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, we're starting a series in First, jo- First John, first sermon here. We need a little bit of orientation. First John is not a familiar stop in a lot of our New Testament reading plans here, uh, oftentimes we can skip 1 John. Oftentimes we skip 2 John. Oftentimes we skip 3 John. It's not as much familiar terrain on the way to the book of Revelation. It's, it's kind of like a city in Alabama, a, a small city that gets overshadowed by some of the bigger cities that surround it. Sometimes you can drive past that exit and drive past that exit and never get off. Never get off. So what we want to do is we don't want to drive past 1 John. We want to get off on the exit. We want to park the car. We're going to walk around. We're going to walk around slowly through the summer. Only four verses today. We're going to pick up the pace, no doubt. But we want to smell uh, what, what's going on in First John. We want to see what's going on in First John. We want to hear what's going on in First John. We want to experience it fully here. Uh, John, to give a little bit of orientation here, is one of the original disciples. We've got 12 disciples. John's the author of five New Testament books, we can count them here on one, uh, one hand. We've got 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. We have the gospel of what? John. And then we have Revelation. So John gives us, he gives us a lot of different genres. He gives us uh, prophetic literature in the book of Revelation. He gives us historical gospel. He gives us an epistle, three of them actually here. So he covers the gamut of, of much of the New Testament genres of literature here. He has a unique distinction, John does, the author of this book, as one of the uh, only disciples outside of Judas's suicide who did not experience a martyr's death. He dies of natural causes here as he's exiled in Patmos writing the book of Revelation. So John is one who experiences a, a fullness of life, much unlike the, the rest of the disciples who were crucified and were executed for their faith, some of them at uh, early ages of life after following Christ. So uh, John has given us a unique detail because we're going to have years and years of John's uh, mature reflection, especially for the early church, he's most likely writing about 40, maybe 50 years after the events of Jesus's life. So we've got second generation Christians he's writing to, and also third generation Christians. We're far enough along in the early Christian story that we have infiltrating the church false teachers. We have people that are uh, really populating the early church with the false teachings of, of a Jesus who really isn't fully divine, 
We have people that are pop, uh, propagating uh, uh, false teaching that what we're called to as Christians isn't what exactly the, the gospel writers would tell us and even the Apostle Paul. So John is going to be polemical, which just simply means that he is going to correct some false teaching in his letter. So we're going to overhear that. But this morning, before we get to all of that in the oncoming chapters, we're answering the question, how do we discover joy? John's an interesting writer. Uh, one of the things about John is in these first four verses, we're going to have the outline of the rest of the book. So let's just hear that together. Let's hear the word of the Lord starting in verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, the church. And indeed our fellowship is with the father, the heavenly father and his son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things, coming back to our theme this morning, we're writing these things so that our joy may be what? Complete. Already we're getting a little bit of the personality of John in the opening sort of introduction to this epistle here. Notice what John doesn't do. He doesn't give us any of the sort of formal uh, distinctions that Paul gives us in his epistles. He doesn't introduce himself. I'm going to say John, apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ, like Paul does in his letters. He doesn't address who he's writing to. So we don't have John doing what Paul does to the church at Rome, to the saints at Philippi. Uh, Paul and his uh, epistles will give us this kind of customary prayer of thanksgiving. John didn't do any of that. John, brass tacks kind of guy, gets right to the heart of the essence of what he wants to talk about. And what John is going to do that can be kind of frustrating to us. If you're a right brain kind of person, you're going to like the way John writes. And the way he writes is sort of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a stream of consciousness. And what he's going to do, he's going to uh, come to these thoughts and he's going to circle back to the thoughts and come back to the thoughts, linear and logical that's not how John operates. So if you like point one, sub point A, sub point B, point two, A, B under that, you're going to be frustrated with John. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John has given us an epistle that works sort of like the lyrical kind of uh, equivalent or the literary equivalent of a musical composition. Uh, one scholar says this about John's writing here in 1 John, that John's going to circle around He's going to come to a basic issue, these issues that he's introducing in the first four verses. He's going to come at it from a variety of angles, develop this aspect and then that aspect. He's going to balance one statement with another statement. He's going to clarify what it means, what it doesn't mean here, and he's going to return to a point. So one of the things that you're going to discover as we walk through 1 John, and I encourage you in your own personal Bible reading to, to read ahead and to read 1 John. It's easy to read in a sitting. You can, 15 minutes, easily be finished with 1 John. I want you to read it oftentimes as we're in the summer. What you're going to discover is John repeats himself and he repeats himself and he repeats himself. But that repetition, divinely inspired, again, is really, really helpful when you understand that his original audience, they're not sitting down. 
And they're not opening their Bibles to 1 John. They're not opening, nobody has personal scrolls of 1 John that they're all individually looking at. So they're orally, they're hearing this. And what is a great tactic to be able to draw people in and to convey understanding, but it's repetition, especially in an oral setting here. So you're going to find this repetition that hones in on meaning as we overhear John talk. Now, what is he saying in these opening four verses? Because it's easy to get lost. We can already get lost in the details of what John is talking about here. Well, he's going to identify what is distinctive about Jesus in two attributes, and he's also going to tell us the effect of Jesus in these first four verses. Let's start with the uh, divinity of Jesus. Did you see that? And did you hear that? In these opening verses, did you see what he is uh, really focusing a spotlight on? Just hear it again. In verse one, what was from the beginning? Verse two, his proclamation is rooted in the eternal life, which was with the Father. If you are listening carefully, what do you hear? You hear John repeating the way he opened his gospel. You remember that in John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's just a variation of that very theme that he starts his gospel out. So he says, I wrote a gospel to you that I wanna begin with the eternality, the divinity of Jesus. I'm coming back to that. That this is foundational for us. It is one of the reasons that we worship Jesus because there's never been a time where Jesus did not exist. Jesus wasn't created in eternity past because God the Father was really lonely. There's always been the Father. There's always been the Son. There's always been the Holy Spirit in this communion, this eternal relationship. Every one of us in the sanctuary this morning, we, we have a day on the calendar that is a unique day for all of us. It is your birthday. And every one of you in some way, some kind of fashion, maybe it's low key, maybe it's really big, you got the whole neighborhood over to your house, you got all your friends, you got all your family, but in some way, low key or with a lot of, of uh, streamers and a, and a lot of, of people around you, you're gonna celebrate your birthday, you might blow out candles, you might eat cake and ice cream, you might open presents. Jesus doesn't do that in heaven. And you say, well, David, what I mean, Christmas, yes, of course, the word became flesh, divinity took upon himself humanity, but there was never a time where Jesus did not exist. This is why he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. I heard a preacher say it this way, that Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father, but no heavenly mother, who had an earthly mother, but no earthly father, he was older than his mother, and who was as old as his father? Yeah, it's easy to get lost in that. But the essence of what is being said here is there's never a time when the son was not. There's never a time where he will not be. He is wholly unique. He is wholly different. We worship a savior who is worthy of our worship because he is eternally present. He's not surprised. There's nothing he hasn't seen. He's not like the great Oz. You remember in the Wizard of Oz Dorothy and her companions are trying to get to the great wizard because the great wizard is what? He is great and he is powerful. But what they realize is just smoke and mirrors. He's parading and he's pretending. 
that, that he really isn't who he says that he is. And what we say, what John says, what we need to be reminded of is he is worthy of all blessing. He is worthy of all honor. He is worthy of all glory. He is as that wonderful uh, hymn of the modern faith says, he is the lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. So is he worthy? Yes, he is worthy because he's the eternal son of God. He is unlike us. And that's good news. So notice the divinity of Jesus, but notice also in, in a, a, a wonderful balancing, John says, I don't want you just to see the divinity of Jesus, but also wants you to relish the humanity of Jesus. In a very particular way, John emphasizes how divinity took upon himself humanity. How the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. John's unique emphasis is found in all of the senses that you hear in these opening four verses. You, you have the visual he comes back to how they've seen, the auditory, how you hear, and also the tangible, how you can touch, is tactile. Notice again, as you're looking at verse one, John says, we've heard him ourselves. He repeats this again in verse three, we've heard him ourselves. And then he moves to, to visual, we've seen, verse one, we've seen with our own eyes. He comes back to that again. We looked at him, verse one. Then in verse two, he says, we've seen him. Verse three, we've seen him. So you see, if you're following along here, John is emphasizing Jesus actually walked in our midst and we saw him with our own eyes and we heard him. And then he moves to verse three and he says, and actually some people touched him. He has to have in mind Thomas. I mean, you remember that story. It's in John chapter 20. Jesus, he conquers the grave. He appears before the disciples. One disciple's not there. You remember who that was? That was Thomas. Thomas doubts the recounting of the other disciples. Jesus shows up in the midst of Thomas. And what does he say to Thomas? Oh, you doubter, get out of my presence. No, he, he holds out his scars. And he says, touch, feel, See, believe. And so here John, decades later, is making a case that the eternality of Jesus entered in the humanity of man. That the eternal son of God became the son of Mary here. And this isn't a legend. This isn't a fable. This isn't a fairy tale. It's a historical fact. There had to be. Decades after Jesus walking on the earth, there had to be in John's presence people who doubted the story of Jesus. And guess what? 2,000 years down the road, there's still people today that doubt that, that what we read in the Bible actually happened. And I want you to just be reminded that the, the root of why we gather to worship isn't because we have found these legends of Jesus. We worship based upon the historical fact of a Jesus who lived on this earth, died on a cross and was raised. And it isn't the eyewitness of one person. We've got four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now there's still people, no doubt, who think this is a fairy tale. I've met them, you've met them. 
Years ago, when we lived here in Birmingham, I was a divinity student. We would go, Danielle and I, to a restaurant that we really loved. I'm not going to give you the details of it, but we got to know the owner really well. And he would always sort of kind of pick at me when he got to know that I was a seminarian. And he would always say, there's there's one of the preacher boys that are here. We got to know one another. And he just had some real skepticism about Christianity. And he would say, you know, David, it's a fairy tale religion. I don't, he would say, I don't, I don't believe in Christianity because I don't believe in the fairy godmother. I don't believe in Christianity because I don't believe in trolls and fairies. I don't believe in legends and fables. But I want you to see what John is doing is he's, he's rooting the gospel in the historicity of experience. He is saying there are people that have seen, there are people that have touched, there are people that have heard Jesus. They walked with him. It's not just one person's account. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, he would say, there are over 500 people who have seen Jesus walking here on the earth. So anybody that said in 52 AD, I don't believe that story of Jesus, living in Ephesus, living in Rome, you know what the early Christians would say? Hey, there's John. How about you go talk to him because he lived with him. And here's not only John, but here's other hundreds of other people who saw who heard, who taught C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, defender of the faith. He, many of you know, was also a professor of literature, and he gave himself to studying, well, to studying fables, legends. And he said this about the Gospels, the four accounts that we have. Lewis says, I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like what we read in the Gospels. People don't die for legends. They don't die for lies. They die for the truth. Early Christian followers who wrote the Gospels, they died, not John, but the other ones, they died deaths. Oftentimes the early apostles died deaths that were cruel, punishing deaths. You know why they died that, died that way? Because they, they believed, they saw they heard. So any person today can say, yeah, uh, Jesus, he walked this earth, but he was a liar. I don't believe what he said. Or you could say, Jesus, he walked this earth. I don't believe that he was a liar, but I believe he was a lunatic. He was crazy. He said that he was the son of God, but he was wrong. He was mistaken. Or you could say as a Christian, he's Lord. He's Lord of my life. But you know what you can't say? You know what I can't say? You know what really what John doesn't give us the ability in the historical account of the gospels gives us the ability to say? We can't say that Jesus was a legend. We have to do something with what they saw, what they heard, and what they taught, touched. So notice here the divinity of Jesus, notice the humanity of Jesus. And finally, I want us just to relish the power of Jesus, the effect of Jesus. It's not just a historical reality in the past, but it is a present reality for all of us here this morning. Notice again in verse three, what we read. In verse three, it says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And this is remarkable. And fellowship Indeed, is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, fellowship's one of these words that we use a lot in church life. It's kind of a churchy word. It's a word that's lost a little bit of its luster. It's lost a little bit of its meaning, especially if you have a, 
a Baptist background. And this, this, frankly, this might be true in Presbyterian life and Methodist life and Anglican brothers and sisters. I just don't know. But in Baptist life, I mean, fellowship is a, is a specific thing. I mean, if you're going to have a fellowship, that means somebody's bringing the fried chicken. Somebody is bringing a jello salad. Somebody's bringing some casseroles. You've got covered dishes. Many of you grew up in a fifth Sunday fellowship. You might do some singing, but you know good and well you're going to be eating. So when we think of this word fellowship, we oftentimes reduce it. We reduce it to the food we share together and some laughter. But the real meaning that John is talking about here is something far greater. He introduces this word in verse 3, and he's going to come back to it three more times between verse 3 and verse 7. And the meaning of this word is something that unites us together. It is, it is a, a group of people that share a common values and beliefs and purposes. We, we love the same things and we want, we want others to join in to what we love and share. If I started the sermon today, I wouldn't do this. I, I would never do this. But just imagine if at the outset of the sermon, I came up here and I said, Roll Tide, or I said, War Eagle. If I started the sermon that way, what, what would I be doing I would be appealing to what? A fellowship. I'd be appealing to this deep loyalty that hundreds of thousands of people, certainly uh, many of which in our state, across the nation, and across uh, pockets of the world, they share. They share a fellowship. They share a deep love of, of their school, of their university. When you start visiting schools, and if you're a graduate of a school, you, you talk about those schools in very specific ways. You talk about the Auburn family. You talk about the Alabama family. You talk about the Samford family or the Troy family. You talk about our universities. You talk about them in familial kinds of ways. But I want you just to hear what John is emphasizing. That as followers of Jesus Christ, we are sons and daughters of the Most High King, and we are part of a family that's not exclusive. It's not prestigious. It's not something that you have to have this kind of prominence to get into. Actually, the admissions requirement, we can't pay. I mean, we can't afford it, but it's been paid for us by Christ, and it is a gift that we receive. And the only way to enter into this family is through the word, as John says in this passage, it's the word who gives life. So when you and I, when we trust in the finished work of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we enter into a fellowship. Not just fifth Sunday singings and, and food around a, a dinner on the grounds here. No, something far richer, far wider, far deeper than any of our allegiances here on earth. And our allegiances are good and they're fine and, and they bring a lot of joy to us, no doubt. But the allegiance that we have, the fellowship that we have is far greater than our favorite teams, our community organizations, the gyms that we belong to is deeper and it's wider than our national heritage. It's deeper than our ethnic heritage. It's a spiritual family where God is our father through Jesus, who is our savior. Here at Dawson, I mean, the, the name of the church Dawson Memorial Baptist Church, L.O. Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. But if you stay around here long enough, you're going to hear, you're going to hear more than Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. You're going to hear Dawson Family of Faith. Dawson Family of Faith. Now, is that just a marketing strategy? The answer is no. It is the best description of the fellowship that is here 
in this church? I mean, just look around in this sanctuary. Why are we all here together for this moment? Is it because we're all from the same hometown? No. Is it because we all have the same professional backgrounds? Is it because we all live in the same communities? Is it because we all uh, went to the same college and we all uh, love the same hobbies and we all listen to the same music and we all stream the same movies and television shows? Is it because we see eye to eye on every political issue? The answer to all those questions is no, 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 no. You know why we are here today is because we're family. Sons and daughters of, of a loving heavenly father united by the love of Jesus. Now here on earth, we do not experience that familial aspect of fellowship perfectly because I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. This is already true for us, but it's not fully realized yet for us. But here on earth, there are times where we get a foretaste of this. We get glimpses of this, like almost like an appetizer of what heaven is going to be like, where every tribe and every tongue and every nation is going to be in their beautiful and splendid diversity, united together by a shared vision of Jesus Christ and a shared worship of him. That's where we're headed to, so we pray. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our destination. That's where we're headed to. And every once in a while, we, we have on earth times where the veil is pulled back and we get a little bit of glimpse, a little bit of a glimpse, what it's going to be like. A couple of years ago, my family and I, we were in Ecuador with our student ministry at the end of that mission trip, the ladies of our team held a women's conference at the jungle camp that's right there at the base in the Amazon region. And so surrounding that area, there are jungle communities and some of the, the women who came to this camp, the about 150 women who came to this camp, many of them lived in those surrounding jungle communities and they had eight hour walks to a bus stop to get on a bus that had a 10 hour bus trip to get them to that camp. Um, in, in many ways, I mean, there's nothing in common in many ways. Uh, the, there's tremendous linguistic barriers between the women who came to that conference and the ladies that were on our team. There were cultural differences. Uh, there are moms and there were wives and they shared that together, but how they experienced that Monday through Sunday was, was very different in the Birmingham metro communities compared to the communities that they lived in. But by the time they were leaving, there was this deep sense of community, this deep sense of love, this deep sense, really, of friendship. And you ask yourself, like, how can that be the case? Well, what is the case is the one who unites us together is greater than our distinctives and differences. And this is the truth of the matter, and I hope you know this as a Christian. We can have more in common with a person that lives thousands of miles away, thousands of miles away, than we can the person who lives down the street from us who says they're worshiping just a fairy tale God. It's the power of the gospel to unite us, the powerful effect of the gospel to bring disparate people together for a common purpose and a common unity. And that common purpose and that common unity is the very great commission that he has given to us. And it's what unites us together, this shared sense 
of commonality, that our mission is greater than our distinctives and our differences. Now you say, what does this have to do with joy? And we might ask that to John, because John tells us in verse four, I'm writing these things, the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the power of Jesus. I'm writing all of these things so that your joy may be complete. And we're here saying, I need 11 steps. I need, I need to know something a little bit more tangible of how I can experience joy. And then John is saying, hey, I want you to relish, I want you to bask in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus continues to do because this is how your joy is complete. And it reminds me of something. When we've got kid life coming tomorrow and it reminds me of just that old acrostic that maybe you learned in vacation Bible school decades ago, ago joy is Jesus, others, yourself. And there's a reason that these things become kind of cliches because there's some truth to this. Now, John is going to get to the others and he's going to get to the yourself later on. But as he starts this letter, you know what he's really spotlighting? He is saying to us, you want to know joy. The source of joy is an inexhaustible person whose wells never run dry. And that person has a name and that name is Jesus And when we bask in and relish in who he is, it's then and only then that we can walk in and experience joy. And that is a message that wasn't just relevant 2,000 years ago. It is relevant for all of us today because so many of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, at some point in time, we will use others so that we might have joy in life. We might indulge ourselves endlessly thinking that if we get this and do this, then we'll have joy. And John is reminding us that, hey, that's just looking for joy in all the wrong places. That old country music song, looking for joy in too many faces. So if John wants us to be reminded of something at the outset, he wants us to hear that you can not just know about Jesus, but you can know Jesus. And as you know him, walk with him, you know joy. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.